welcome to this week's episode of the Human Enhancement Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu, and I'm really excited to have Dr. Felice Gersh on our program today. And she's been a well-known practitioner, both of uh, OBGYN and in- in- integrative medicine over the last, what, 20, 30 years now, and has delivered dozens of babies in Orange County, but has recently moved into uh, integrative medicine and really looking at longevity and, and wellness broadly. Uh, so let's dive into it. Um, we had spoken a little bit previously before, but I think it'd be great to talk about your background as a medical expert. Um, how did you go from being an OBGYN and delivering babies into really sort of scoping out and, and looking at human performance and, and longevity broadly? Well, I'd actually always been somewhat involved in what would be called sort of the alternative medicine world. In my practice from the very beginning, I had on board as an ancillary to my services, a Chinese medicine practitioner who did Chinese herbal medicine and acupuncture. I had biofeedback specialists. I had psychologists. I had nutritionists. So I actually had a whole array of these alternative practitioners working with me. But I myself had no specific training except in the conventional medical world. Right. And for many, many years, I delivered, like like I said, thousands of babies, and I did thousands of surgeries. And I was very conventional, but I knew that it wasn't enough. But I didn't take the deep dive until after I stopped doing obstetrics, and that was 10 years ago. And suddenly, out of the blue, I had a little bit more sleep, a little bit more time, and I demanded that all the pharmaceutical reps who paraded through my office on a very regular basis to show me their studies mm-hmm. and to show me what made their drug actually useful. And I was shocked to see what I found. I found that they often deviated almost minusculely from the placebo effect. And sometimes I wasn't quite sure that they did. And the side effect profile was horrendous. And I looked at it and I said, how could I justify giving this drug for this little bit of benefit with this array of side effects? And I I felt really lost. I didn't really want to just do end-stage disease and take out diseased organs. It's like we, we had this crazy sort of protocol in obstetrics and gynecology, it was like, you have fibroids, we'll watch them. And then when it gets really bad, we'll cut them out. And it would be like endometriosis. Well, we don't know what to do. So we'll just take all your hormones away. And then we'll just cut things out. It's like, this got to be a better approach than this. This is not giving me joy. I don't feel like I'm doing things that are useful. So I went on my own personal journey and I started taking random courses with this group of practitioners that I had never heard of called naturopathic doctors. And I said, who are these people? And they, they have a totally different philosophy. It's of the, the doctor is not the healer. The doctor is like the teacher and the the guide to help people to find what they need to allow their bodies to heal themselves. And this really resonated with me. It's like, yes, I can't heal people. I have to find the tools to allow them to heal themselves. And I don't have that. So I kept going to more and more conferences. And I was just sort of randomly taking things. I was learning, but I didn't have any structure. And at one conference, there was one MD in this entire room of naturopaths and myself, the other MD. And I went up to her afterwards. And I said, you and I are the only MDs. And I'm so lost. I don't know what to do to really feel good about myself as a doctor. And she said, in two weeks, we start the next class, the fellowship in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona School of Medicine. Hmm. She said, you're, you know, you're qualified. We had chatted and she said, just apply. So I went home. I was in Portland, Oregon. I flew home. I filled out the application. And two weeks later, I was in Tucson and I started the 
two-year fellowship, and I finished it five years ago. Wow. And since then, it's been an endless journey of additional learning. I, Everyone who finishes the fellowship, fellowship goes in a certain direction because they know that's not the end. Right. And some will learn like healing remedies like um, homeopathy or healing touch or massage or aromatherapy. And I know about those, but I didn't do like the deep dive into those. What I did was I went more in the direction of functional medicine. I really wanted to know how does the body work? Right. Because, you know, so much had changed in, in terms of the knowledge base since I was in medical school. And, you know, I had to learn and relearn just about everything like how does the cell work yeah. what is biochemistry so well, i just have been learning i want to ask about this because that's a very interesting background because i feel like you know the most of the naturopaths or alternative medicine practitioners want to be you know associated with classic traditional medicine and traditional or western medicine and, and get the credibility and, and, and the rigor of western medicine and it seems interesting that you started from a very rigorous western medicine training um and going into what is a little bit more alternative i mean i'm curious from your perspective um you know obviously you know we don't want to paint overly broad swaths here but you know the critique on alternative medicine or naturopathy is that they're pseudoscience is that they're not really well-grounded in science how are you as uh you know someone's classically trained as a doctor uh how do you navigate that i mean are you kind of picking and choosing okay this stuff is actually legitimate and, and, and has good data versus uh like home, homeopathy maybe you know it, there's no data there right so uh, how, how do you navigate uh you know the good stuff from the bad stuff within this kind of this crazy field of, of alternative medicine well, I actually consider myself extremely evidence-based in okay. the things that I choose. Yeah. So I, but I also, I have a much bigger, like what I will consider evidence than maybe a placebo, a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, because that does not work for most everything except a drug. <laughs> That's the thing. So I believe in observation, experience. So I look at that as also part of evidence. Mm -hmm. So... But um, so I'm a little bit looser than it has to be a placebo, you know, double blind controlled trial. Right. But I, I don't do things that I feel are not really tried, true and, and evidence based. And part of the difference between me and a lot of the naturopaths is like the way I really have researched and learned about cell biology and biochemistry. And I really try to take what a lot of them do. And I work with two who I love, but I take a lot of what they do and I try to find the science to really explain it. Yeah. Like, for example, like I had not learned ever about that there are these like little um, fibrillar kinds of structures in cells that actually can communicate between cells. Like, like the fascia that covers the whole body acts as a sort of a conduit for touch. That, so like how does it happen that you could have like ice dancers you know, that or ballroom dancers that they can know what the other is doing they act as almost like one creature hmm. they act together as what how can that happen nerves don't transmit quickly enough but by touch you can actually send signals throughout the entire body through this sort of cell to cell communication that is completely unrelated to nervous system hmm. and so but naturopaths kind of got that but they didn't know how to explain it scientifically right and you know acupuncture was inexplicable for so long and now we're understanding that it may also work along some of those same lines that there's these other ways of communicating within the body well, that like touch are not, points right like they yeah, might not necessarily exactly. be you know 
it sounds like you know, the traditional Chinese medicine practitioners might not have, you know, there's, you know, the astrology or or some of the pseudoscience associated with it might not necessarily be, you know, the mechanism. But there is some notion around certain points within a muscle that release stress or, or hold tension. So it seems like there's definitely a, a, a merging of you know, the way I think about this is that there's um, a ton of data out there across traditional medicine to Western medicine and, and people's folk practices and, and cultural practices. And if you're seeing signal again and again where something is working, uh, we should think of that as something that's at least interesting to explore and understand more. And, and, and of course, some of the stuff just isn't going to work, but some of these some of these practices end up do being really beneficial and, 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 and yeah, very like helpful. I, I work with some people that do things that other people who don't understand it think you know like woo woo kind of medicine right. but like like earthing or now they're using the term more grounding right. like this idea that you know you can run around on grass and right. get better but the reality is that we we understand the science that the earth can act as an electron donor and you can right. actually sort of um quench free radicals and reduce inflammation oxidative stress in the body by connecting with our planet and the the idea that our planet resonates with the same energy that our brains resonate with. I mean, this is unbelievable connectivity between us and our planet, which isn't, which isn't like pretend. It's real, you know. No, I so, mean, I've but, seen, actually so, I was talking to Deepak Chopra, and I, 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 and it sounds like he's very involved in looking at grounding, and, and it sounds like he has a group of people actually publishing, you know, peer-reviewed papers around uh, uh, effects of are. grounding, and it's and I think like yes, one can take the spiritual approach to it, but there does seem to be something around the fact that yes, there's potentially different electric charges between uh, our bodies and the ground. And mm-hmm. we can, yeah. it's not my expertise area, but there, <laughs> but there is, there's, there does seem to be a, a physics explanation to why uh, actually touching your bare foot through something yeah. conductive to the ground well, might see some effect. Well, there was a fascinating article that also just about the connectivity of people as yeah. well, that when a baby, and this also works for adults, so right. but the baby's brain is actually developing with this, that when the mother and the baby lock gaze, you know, that they look at each other and they're actually looking directly into each other's eyes, their brain waves synchronize. Like, how amazing is that, you know? And that helps to actually... have the baby's brain develop and then they're detecting this with EEGs so they're just monitoring EEGs okay yes they're synchronizing their brain waves so there's so much that we don't know that is not testable in the ways that we used to test things so I guess the way I approached medicine really from the beginning is with a big open mind you know that like the whole universe is mysterious and I'm going to do my best to understand just a speck of it, you know, the, the speck that I can figure out. And, and that's my fun journey. That's why it's so sad because you probably know this, but 60% of doctors and it's probably more because it's always underestimated suffer from when they, what they label burnout. They, they hate going to work. They see patients as annoyances. It's like, right. it's so terrible. I have to warn people like beware, you know, the doctor you're seeing, has a high probability, more probable than not, as we say, that that doctor is suffering from burnout and um, will not listen to you. And it's really very hard to to tell people that because they want to trust their doctors. But you have to find um, doctors that are not burnt out. You know, no, it, it's really them. refreshing. What doing. Absolutely refreshing talking to you. Cause I, I think you can clearly sense the joy and energy coming from you describing your work. And I think end of the day, it is about an open mind and curiosity. Um, and it just seems like, you know, 
I've talked to multiple doctors and there seems to be a lot of frustration with the system of how doctors and healthcare insurance and how the financial incentives are structured in a way where this is not like a conversation you have between a doctor and, and, and a patient in a more of a coaching relationship. It's very much uh, a, a, an ivory figure in, in an ivory tower that's a master telling you know the, the, the student, you must do this, here's this prescription. Uh, I only have time to talk to you for five minutes because I have to talk to the, the 17 other people in my waiting room <laughs> and I have to like churn it out because I have to pay my medical school debt. And I see, and it's very understandable that yes, that that I think all doctors, I would, I, I think, come into the space wanting to ultimately help people, and I, I really believe that. And it seems it's a shame that some of the institutional frameworks have beaten that out of a lot of people in, in, that are practicing doctors. So, but it, I think it is refreshing. I think you were able yeah. to, I think, go in the system and and, and successfully deliver thousands of babies and do thousands of surgeries, but also still keep that curious, open mind. Well, I had my own what I would call a nervous breakdown back of quite a few years ago because I couldn't take it anymore. I would have had burnout. But one day with no thought, no plan, nothing, yeah. I fired all of my insurance carriers that I had contracts with. I said, you know what? I can't work with them. They cannot rule me. I have to have a relationship with my patient. Right. And that is the primary point of why I go to work every day. I cannot right. be um, beholding to an insurance company. So I just fired them all. And I said, you know, I'm just going to charge reasonable rates. And I'm just going to be an outlier. I guess I've, I've always been something of an outlier. Now I'm more of an outlier, right. because I can't I can't practice with those constraints. And I, I know that you're kind of an outlier. Because uh, you know, you're, I you know, the little bit I've learned about you, Jeffrey, <laughs> is that you kind of forge your, your own path when it comes to your own health. Yeah, and I think that's I think a broader populist movement within healthcare. I think you see this happening with internet technology, where there's more and more information available to the entire world. I think you see certain, you know, similar patterns happening with cryptocurrencies, with you know, populist movement within financial systems. And I think you see that happening now with biohackers. And I think just everyday consumers or, or patients really getting up to speed on their own health and taking responsibility for it, and and, and understanding you know your biomarkers and understanding how to manipulate. I, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, does that seem to be uh, reflective in your patient base and your experience? I mean, what has been an interesting or what patterns have you seen in your practice as you moved from an OBGYN focus to more of an integrative functional practice in the recent five years? You know, what are, you know, what things are interesting? Uh, what are the most popular interventions? I know we had talked about fasting and circadian <laughs> rhythms and we should talk about the pros and cons and, and perhaps some of the pitfalls one might encounter. Uh, I'm curious as you're moving into this new part of your practice, um, what, what has been some of the most interesting experiences so far? Well, in terms of like the relationship I have with my patients, I look at myself as like a consultant, right? I'm not their boss. I never think that. And I have the most wonderful patients who bring me information as well. So we work really as a team and I encourage my patients to read. We live in a world where doctors are not like, um, they have a secret language and a secret set of code books and things. Everything is open. You know, everything is open source. Right. And I say, you know what? If you want to research this on PubMed and you can become more expert than I, great, go for it. You know, like I don't think of this as a secret society of medicine. And I love it that it's sort of open source and everyone can look out for themselves and research and so on. And for myself, what probably got me like the most angry 
and then excited in other ways, was the Women's Health Initiative that came out way back in, and then was terminated in 2002, where they said that basically their conclusion was that hormones are evil for women. It was so crazy. It's like, wait a minute. I know what hormones do. How could they be good one day and then evil the next? How could they be good for one woman who is still premenopausal at age 52 and another woman who went through an earlier menopause at 46 say it's bad for her at, at 46? It didn't make any sense at all. And then I looked at, well, how did we even give hormones to women when we gave them? And we still do. This is a standard of care. We give a little bit every day the same. And it's like, wait a minute. But women are rhythmic, you know, and I started, wait, but mm. we have lots of rhythms, you know, and it, it got me into the whole world of human rhythms. And and that's really one of my passions now, looking at circadian rhythm right. and lunar rhythm and even seasonal rhythms. And, and men have rhythms, too, like men's testosterone level is lunar. And it's so amazing huh. if you have a man and a woman together and the woman is not on birth control pills, which changes. That's another whole big issue yeah. but it that changes everything but if she has natural hormones and he has natural hormones they actually synchronize and mm. the woman's peak of estrogen then upregulates her testosterone receptors and then she actually has a spike in testosterone and the receptors are more receptive and the male will peak his testosterone production at the same time interesting so that's the amazing synchrony of people living together is there and, is there published data on that Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, I think I've, I've seen the data on, you know, groups of women living together will synchronize their menstrual cycle. I But I, that's interesting to see that also crosses over into, you know, a men's testosterone cycle as well. That's interesting. But think, Jeffrey, they're not, women are not supposed to be synchronizing to each other in a random fashion. They're actually supposed to be synchronizing to the moon. And that you've probably heard that a moon a full moon is romantic, right? Okay. Well, why is a full moon romantic? I don't know. Because in ancient, <laughs> in ancient times, men and women both spiked their hormones, their testosterone, at ovulation time, and women ovulated on the full moon. Huh. So, so women were designed to be synchronous with their solar system, with their their planet and their moon. But in the absence of that, when we live indoors and we're you know secluded from the world out, outside, and we don't mm. see the sun, the moon, and the stars, then what happens is the dominant woman will become the one that the other women will synchronize their cycles to, because okay. we're they're all supposed to be in synchrony. And all women would have a period at the same time. They would ovulate at the same time. And it was with the moon. Huh. So it's, That's know, interesting. It's, it's so, amazing. so so, if one were wanted to test this in a science experiment, then one would essentially randomize two different groups of women, one indoors, one you know, living a, a more traditional lifestyle with a lot of access, I guess, to the sky and the moon. And over a certain period of time, you would expect, if, if, if this hypothesis proves out, that... Um, that you know that that once that one subsegment the the cohort would mirror the menstrual cycle to the lunar cycle, huh? Right. That's that would be great. We should do that. Yeah. And then you know <laughs> this this brings up the whole like we had talked about before about yeah. you know the whole issue of fasting and yes. women and their cycles. If yes. if a woman is having a natural cycle, you know what's the data on what should she do and how does fasting affect her fertility and right. so on. And, and there actually is some data on that. And of course, it's been a very active area of conversation because a lot of our community members are women and, you know, fertility is of, you know, a big concern of 
how that might be impacted. So love to hear your experience and, and your understanding here of how to best recommend and, and talk about fasting for, for, for our women biohackers out there. Well, I, th I think the, uh, the information is actually quite exciting in terms of how, um, how this can actually interrelate and actually be very beneficial for women, especially perhaps for women who have premenstrual syndrome, because I'll tell you how this works. So the studies that looked at women who did 12-hour fasts every day, so just a day every day, and they looked at them through the menstrual cycle, the first part of the menstrual cycle before ovulation is called the follicular phase. Mm -hmm. And then from ovulation until the menstrual period begins is called the luteal phase. Okay. So during the um, initial phase, the follicular phase, during that phase, if they did the 12 hour fast, they showed that they had increased in high frequency waves. I'm sure you, you know about doing things like heart math and looking at brain waves. So if you do the the brain waves, they found that they had more high frequency when they did the 12 hour fast, which is good. It means that they're increasing parasympathetic. It's calming, less of the, okay. the so, sympathetic. So the alpha beta waves, which well, are so no, Well, in terms of, well, you know, actually what I can say that the way that the study was reported, they didn't actually go into that, okay. but they said basically there was upregulation of the calming part of the autonomic nervous system, the okay. parasympathetic. Okay. So, so sympathetic nervous system is what you would as the, the, that part of the, so there's the autonomic nervous system, which controls all the different functions of the body that you don't think about, right. like heart rate and sweating and breathing and things like that, that should be automatic. So it's autonomic, but it's like automatic. And then the sympathetic part is the part that would get you activated, like you're stressed, you're anxious. So when you have sympathetic upregulated, you have faster heartbeat, you would have more hypertension, the blood vessels would constrict, you would definitely shunt a lot of your blood flow, like to more to your muscles and away to other essential organs like your GI tract and right. so on before that time. So it's more like the fight or flight where you're going to go into war, you're going to fight, you're going to do survival kinds of things. Okay, parasympathetic is like calming, like think of a baby doing belly breathing and just sleeping and calmness, right? So everything is the opposite. You have increased blood flow like to your skin and your heart rate goes slower, your blood vessels dilate, you right. know, and it's all that calming thing. So if heart you rate live, variability is also associated with, you know, increased heart rate variability means better recovery. And then it's a exactly. sign of parasympathetic action. Ex right. Yeah. So it has many effects. So if you live and you're chronically in sympathetic, upregulated tone, that means your blood vessels are constricted, you have high pulse, you're those are bad things to live with, because you don't want to be in a basically a stressed out state. Think right. of that as sympathy. So it turned out, and is this like not going to be so beautiful that women who did 12 hour fasts, they had more parasympathetic tone and less sympathetic. So basically, it was a calming effect on the body, on the autonomic nervous system. So and that went across both phases, the, the follicular and the luteal. Right. So it just made them calmer. It, it's that's better for longevity, right? It's a it improved heart rate variability. Right. And the thing that was really fascinating is that in the luteal phase, which is the premenstrual phase, like women who get PMS really badly, it not only increased the parasympathetic and heart rate variability, it also lowered their systemic cortisol levels. Wow. Okay. I know. So is that like 
and cortisol for those that don't know don't right. understand is essentially the stress hormone cortisol spikes when you're stressed so if you're lowering that that's that's a fascinating result it's great it's right. great and so then they did studies of doing three-day fasts they okay. were three-day fasts and they did I, they had studies in both the follicular the early part of the menstrual this is cycle water fast zero calories this is all water fasting okay. that they did zero calorie water fasting for three days and they did one there was one these were actually different groups but one did it in the luteal phase okay. and one did it in the follicular phase and what they found was that in women of normal weight that if they did it in the follicular phase a few days before ovulation that what happened was their LH variability and surges were a little bit less so the hormones that come from the pituitary gland to stimulate the ovary to make hormones and ovulate, they were a little bit suppressed, but not enough to impact on ovulation. They okay. had perfect ovulation. It was a, there was an effect, but it didn't seem to be consequential in terms of how the woman actually functioned. And they lost, so the women who had normal weight actually lost body fat and they had improvement in all their, their, a lot of their different parameters, but they did not suppress ovulation. They did not. But in women who were underweight, they did suppress ovulation in a certain percentage, and they did have some alterations, and they actually, cortisol rose. And that's bad. That, like you just talked about, right. cortisol. So what I would say is that, and, and this is in my own practice, I never do such fasting with women who are like really, really low body weight. Right. So that that's not for them. That is not for them. Right. You know, and if you think of like anorexic women, they're like fasting inappropriately all the time, right? right. That's what we don't want. It's starvation. No, I, I think that's an that's important terrible. caveat. Yeah. Right? Like if you are, if one is underweight already, do not fast. It's called starvation. That's right. <laughs> and, and so this was great that it proved it, right. that there was that it did not, and the same thing happened in the in the luteal phase, that they did better. Of course, it's already after ovulation, but that a woman can do this who has normal weight or overweight. They actually have fewer studies on overweight, but we need to get more studies. Right. But it did not, the, the critical thing is that it did not wreck their ovulation. So, but it gave them all the benefits. But so it's just, if you're underweight, eat and you know don't do fasting but if you're normal weight or above this is perfect for you That's yeah it's it, good news i have do you have a we should link this paper or other study in in the in the show notes after this i can uh, do that because it'll be helpful i, I think i think our community appreciates reading and diving into the, in the methods and the research and the data and the raw data of itself. But I think, you know, that's that's an exciting news because I think in our community, there's been a lot of just debate back and forth, you know. Um, is this, again, I, I think you answered it quite clearly with, with the result in the study you cited. Um, the data seems to be, you know, quite good. And I think, again, let's be evidence-driven. Let's follow the data. And the data seems to be positive. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think there's no reason for people any any woman not to get at least a 12-hour fast in at, at night yeah. right because they can get all their nutrients in they're not withholding any nutrients so that should be for any woman and in the idea that they're going to be calmer how you know they're going right. to they didn't they, there's so many studies i wish we could do you know because i'll bet they had better night's sleep but we don't have that data right you know but well, it's, it's just interesting i mean 12 hours is not even that long of a fast i mean that's 9 a.m to 9 p.m that you get to eat I mean, it's just basically not being silly and having like a midnight snack or, or something, but, right? But, but I have a rule. 
forks down at 7 p.m. because your pancreas, you know, we talk about, I love circadian rhythm, right? right? Your pancreas is asleep doing other things like repairing itself after about seven, eight at night. So you really, even healthy food will stress out your body. We have lots and lots of data on people who are shift workers. Mm -hmm. And women who are shift workers have much higher rates of breast cancer, depression, anxiety, and Alzheimer's and metabolic syndrome. So you just can't flip your, this is embedded into our genes. You know, one third of all of our genes in our body are clock genes. Right. One third. And oh. the ones that aren't relate to the clock genes. Yeah. We, we really need, we can't change it. It's like I always use analogies. So here, it's like I really could use another set of eyes on the back of my head. It would be so convenient. So I'm going to will it. It's not going to happen. Right. right. You can't will yourself to have a, a flip circadian rhythm that you can work all night and sleep all day. <clears throat> it won't happen. Right. You will be unhealthy. You cannot change. That is so inbred in, <clears throat> ingrained into our genetics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the data is very clear there. I mean, you know, the sun is such a potent uh, signaling factor for so many different metabolic pathways. And you look at the, you can look at the curves, you know, testosterone, growth hormone, um, ghrelin for appetite, insulin i mean these are all spike Every. according to a, a daily pattern and usually the anchor is the sun uh and if you it, and if you if you shift if you live in a box with no sun i think that's why these things start getting out of whack so it is important to you know reflect back you know at least understand how these things work and to, to one make sure you're not throwing them out of you know, out of whack, and two, can we optimize our, our our schedule around these natural rhythms? And one of the things, I one of my other areas that I've been really getting more and more expert in, I've always have more to learn, is the world of the environmental toxins that we live in and okay. how that impacts on us. And just in terms of the circadian rhythm, the estrogen and testosterone have receptors on the master clock that sits atop the optic nerve in a place in the brain in the area of the hypothalamus called the suprachiasmatic nucleus mm -hmm. and there are actual receptors in the retina of the eye that perceive light and the signal directly goes to that master clock and nowhere else that's how important the entrainment with light is every day exactly but the master clock cannot properly work without hormones like estrogen and testosterone they're both key and when you of course age messes us up and you know we can talk forever about what happens to sleep in older people and how they wake up often at three o'clock in the morning it's like what's happening that's called a phase advance and that's because their circadian clock is messed up and they're, they're and hormones can often help that but if you live even at a young person a young person lives in a world of endocrine disruptors bisphenol a and phthalates and heavy metals that act as estrogen endocrine disruptors or well, even like that, light that, pollution where you're just like looking oh at a my cell God, phone yes you're just reading your your iphone when you're right before going to bed and you kind of blue light hitting your optic nerve and i know you're, mm -hmm. you're, you know yes yeah. it's, it's so big there's so many <laughs> things working against us yes. you know endocrine disruptors light pollution i I'm, i hope you have a set of amber glasses you know yes <laughs> I, yes, yes it's in my, my my desk over there and i have my bedroom blocked out as much as possible with uh um, with 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 you know so no ambient light and I also have like a, a little and I have a, a little sound generator to, for some white noise as well. So I I have my I'm optimized. <laughs> yeah, I sleep I sleep actually with nightshades now because I cannot get the ambient light out of my bedroom well enough. So yeah. I just wear you know 
black, you know, covered goggle type, yeah. essentially, yeah. you know, to cover my eyes. They're actually pretty comfortable. I got them on one of those long distance flights, you know, where you, <laughs> where you get the, the, so you can fall asleep on the plane. Yeah. So, you know, I'm used to it now. Yeah. And I sleep much better. You know, I hope yeah. everybody realizes how important it is to sleep in a room that's cool and very dark. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, before throwing you off track there, I mean, yeah, what is the data around phthalates? I mean, we've all read, you know, kind of perhaps maybe the, 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 the overly scary articles where, you know, there's a pond of frogs and it all turned female because of plastic poisoning. And, 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 and there's some debate whether that's, you know, a tall tale or whether that's real. I'm curious, can you break that down for us? Uh, what are the biggest environmental factors that you've seen uh, that's, you know, most that we should be most concerned about and, and how do we stay oh away gosh. from them? Oh, so challenging to stay away from like the air we breathe and here in Southern California with the fires with the and also fires. Northern California, the fire, the, you know, it's not just the particulate matter, which is horrible and dangerous, but now when things burn up, of course, you get in all the toxins from the flame retardants and, you know, all the other um, toxic chemicals that are used in building materials. Right. So, you know, so that's, everyone should have a really high-end air filter and these um this all is the ash and everything is all getting into our reservoirs so and into the groundwater so everyone needs to get a really high-end reverse osmosis water filter i mean these should be standard now every every home should have these and you can get the reverse osmosis water filter just for your sink and in your kitchen at least the main water that you drink and you cook with is from that you know and you can then take some and you know you can bottle it yourself in your own glass or stainless steel water containers, right. preferably not plastic, right? And so, you know, that's a very big thing. The water that is going, that's in our lakes and rivers now is a problem because the water treatment plants were only designed to deal with the uh, bacteria. And pharmaceuticals are just getting into our water supplies like crazy. You know, they say they should put Prozac and, and everything. Yeah, we were talking about phthalates and birth control pills. I mean, it sounds like yes. I mean, birth control pills, as you you know, is is just high levels of progesterone and estrogen. I mean, and that that's going through the you know the water system. But, but, but they're not even that. They're really, um, if you go to like Medline, right. you'll see that, or the U.S. toxicology site website, mm -hmm. they list the chemicals that are in birth control pills as endocrine disruptors because they're really not estrogen and they're really not progesterone. They're really um, chemicals like bisphenol A. Its first approach was to be a pharmaceutical. Mm -hmm. Bisphenol A, that which is a known endocrine disruptor, it wanted to be a pharmaceutical to be a pretend estrogen. Well, mm -hmm. it lost out to diethylstilbestrol, which caused havoc and uh, horrible things in pregnant women, right. another whole giant story. But the chemicals that are in birth control pills are not hormones. And I just want to, that's one of my missions is to change people, including doctors, from calling them hormonal contraception to calling them endocrine disruptor contraception, because okay. that's what they are. But um, but they are getting into, you know, the waters and, and phthalates, which are, they're, you know, People think that they're okay. They don't even really, it's what they're doing. Most colognes, perfumes, all the scents that we have in, you know, hair conditioners and shampoos and cleaners, it's like, oh, it smells like lavender. It's not lavender. It's a chemical. Right. And they're phthalates. They're endocrine disruptors. And they're also in things like vinyl, like shower curtains that are vinyl, vinyl flooring, and they off-gas. 
male sperm counts. I hate to tell people this because if people don't know this, male sperm counts over the last 30 years have plummeted. When I first went to medical school, I was taught that oh, like 60 million. Okay, then they said, no, 40 million. Now it's like 20 million. It's not like the normal is, is what it should be. The normal is what they're calling the reference range, which is a huge problem because male sperm counts are plummeting around the world. Right. And so, and this is a largely because of phthalates. We know that phthalates- It's actually interesting. So in medical school, literally the reference range has dropped by 3X since that's- yeah, I've 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 seen some articles about that, and it seemed like, but that's interesting that literally the reference range as taught has been dropping. Wow. Right, and so that's why you have to be very careful. This is like a very good clue for people. When you look at a lab, a lot of times, even doctors, they say it's in the normal range. They don't list them on the lab form as normal range. They're called reference range. And that means that they tested like two to 3,000 random people and they're the two and a half percentile is the you know, and below is the bottom number and two and a half percentile is the top number. So you're talking about 95% of random people. The fact that you fit into that range doesn't mean a darn thing. Yeah. It's really about what's optimal. So I tell people, if you have no clue what's optimal, just think, is this something you want or don't want to have a lot of in your body? Like you don't want to have a very high levels of liver enzymes that would go along with like having liver disease or hepatitis, right? right. So you want to be in the bottom half, but you don't want to have low thyroid. So you probably want to be more in the upper half or for a nutrient you want to be in the upper half no i think that's a great point that you bring up that the typical reference range is just a random sampling of humans and if you look around in america today you know half of americans are obese if not overweight the the diabetic diabetes charts uh, all the metabolic syndrome rates are skyrocketing. So if that is like the reference that you want to be comparing yourself against, <laughs> that is not the range you want to be comparing yourself against. It's refreshing to hear from a medical doctor's perspective that you know, we can actually know what the reference range is about. And it's not this like magical, healthy range. It's a range that is a, a guide and we can be optimizing towards a range that, you know, with a, with a doctor or with a, you know, with self-education, one can actually manipulate these, these, these biomarkers in a way that you see fit for your intended use case. Yeah. Right. And I'm, I'm a big tester. I yeah. love, I love getting information on people. It's so totally non-invasive except for poking their vein you know right. and there's there is so so much information that we can get on people like one of the things that is very popular now is getting like calcium scores for people's um heart right. to look at you know but i'm not really big on calcium scores for a few reasons one i'm so anti um, medical radiation, except when it's absolutely necessary. One of the things that happened in my practice years ago, I did mammography and I did bone densities, which I, I don't do them in my office any longer. But in order to do that, I actually had to have a radiation supervisor license, which meant that I had to have the same um, qualifications. I had to take this like multi-hour test, the same like if you were running a CT center or an MRI center, I had the same, I had to tried to memorize like a book that was like six inches thick. <laughs> I, I think in hindsight, it's like, I don't 
know how I did that, but I did it. And so in order to maintain my license as a radiation supervisor, I had to do a lot of continuing medical education every year. So since I was not running CTs or MRIs, I didn't really want to learn about the technical part of running them. So all the education I did was on radiation safety. Mm -hmm. So it's like every year I had to do like 20 hours of radiation safety and and I kept reading like, oh, this stuff is really dangerous, you know, like, why, well, why are we doing so many CT scans on people? As you right. probably know, you walk into an emergency room and you have almost any complaint, they want to get a CT scan on you. And they never ask like, well, how much radiation have you been exposed to in the last year or in your life and so on? Right. And they're now... Um, estimating that something like at least six percent of all cancers in the country are are induced by medical radiation hmm. so you know so i'm figuring like for a heart there's so many ways you can know about the status of your arteries without having to do a cat scan right. of your heart and even though it's a low dose cat scan it's still a cat scan and you know you can do lab tests inflammatory marker testing right. and you can know about like so much because we now know and this is like one of my pet peeves is looking at cholesterol and saying you have high cholesterol go on a statin right and a cholesterol a high cholesterol is a symptom now if you have oxidized cholesterol and you we call it oxidized ldl that is what can harm that is you really bad yeah Yes, we don't yeah. want oxidized. It's like rancid. I use like the word rusting because oxidation is rust, right? Yeah. So think of it. Do you want to be rusting inside? You know, so people can picture that because they don't always understand like free radicals and that sort of thing. So you don't want to have cholesterol that gets rancid because everybody knows like what rancid means. And but if you don't get oxidized LDL, that's the only kind that gets into an artery that can cause plaque. Just cholesterol does not nobody dies of high cholesterol it has to be oxidized right. and in fact when you get elderly they've now shown that people with very low cholesterol have a much higher mortality rate hmm. than a high cholesterol because cholesterol is key to cell membranes a cell membrane which you need to have a functional healthy cell the cell membrane is what allows everything to be transported in and out of the cell right. so it can function and live and the brain is so full of cholesterol and of course your steroid hormones so low cholesterol is terrible and i have to tell people out there that's why i'm not in favor of veganism because people who are i hope you're not a vegan i never I'm asked not you a vegan. oh you <laughs> okay because i know sometimes it's like a you know they're so um diehard about it right. because and i no, we should talk about the data i mean i think i think no one should be dogmatic about it i mean if, if there's interesting data around a certain practice there's pros and cons it's debated out i mean i think if one is so adamant around veganism well they should be able to respond so i i i, I that, that should be the way to, to think about it i mean i would if even if i were vegan i'd love to hear the response of because i think i've seen, we've seen the data around ketogenic diets and some of the critique there is that you, you might be able to you're raising you know your ldlc levels but is that necessarily a bad thing Right, and I think there's an interesting, active area of debate and research around, um, and I think as you're referencing, that maybe the LDLC levels themselves are not the the root cause. It's a it's it's a side effect that is not necessarily uh, causing disease. It's just a side effect of a of a type of diet, and then you also just need it for a lot of just normal metabolic function. Right. Well, if you just like touch on LDL, LDL is not, I hate that when they say you have good cholesterol, you have bad cholesterol. Right. LDL is not bad cholesterol. It's essential to life. If you have zero LDL, you're in big trouble. Right. It's, it's, um, LDL is part, it works with the immune system. You need to have LDL. 
Um, and in fact, there is really no correlation between your level of LDL cholesterol and mortality. I mean, mm. th and that's why they had this big debate that came out like a couple of years ago. Should you even have an LDL goal? You know, goal? Like, what's right. a goal? Well, right. then they said, no, there is no goal. And the doctors went crazy because they couldn't live without a goal. They, they had been so you know, ingrained in their head that they had to give statins to push it, push it, push it to get the LDL down to like 30. I mean, it's like, no, that is not what you would want. You simply want to lower oxidative stress in the body, right. right? You want to have proper nutrition. And it's all about inflammation and oxidative stress. And they've right. shown that now. I mean, right. there have been new papers out saying it's not about cholesterol. It's about oxidative stress. I mean, right. like, and it, one like of the for biggest us, controls of oxidative stress is refined sugars. Right. I huh. think I think the worst is when you have a lot of refined sugar and a lot of fatty foods and you have high yes. cholesterol that that I think that is a pretty, I think, consensus argument that that is a really, really bad c combo. <laughs> and, you know, and getting back to the circadian rhythm, right. there is data that people who eat a high fat, a bad, high, bad fat, you know, high fat, high sugar diet, it actually changes their microbiome which in very bad ways, which actually correlates because the microbiome has its own clocks. Right. And there are two ways that the body maintains the proper circadian rhythm. Right. One is through the master clock. The other is through the clock in your microbiome, which then directly communicates to the liver. There's right. a direct communication between the gut microbiome and the liver through the short chain fatty acids and the portal circulation. And this, then when you have the liver's clocks get all off, you know, off kilter, then the liver goes into a state of uncontrolled gluconeogenesis. Okay. It just starts pouring out sugar. Huh. And then it, it just feeds the whole diabetes thing. So and but they've shown that the clocks get out of sync. So you alter your circadian rhythm when you eat the high fat, high sugar diet. So it all everything gets back to circadian rhythm again, and, right. and, and the beat, you know, to live with the beat, and right. so on. But absolutely, your diet is key to virtually every function in your body. And, and the thing that's that happens like with the vegans is that they don't have enough saturated fat, you, you don't need a lot. That's the thing. Like, I eat a very small amount of animal protein, but you need some and you need some saturated fat for having proper function in the body. And you, it, it just, you need to have cholesterol. So a lot of vegans are so proud of their very, very low cholesterol, but they're forgetting that cholesterol is so precious to the body that the body has a recycling system in the gut to mm -hmm. pull the cholesterol back in. Because yeah. it loves cholesterol, it needs cholesterol, right. and of course there are some pharmaceuticals which actually did work very terribly to try to bind the cholesterol and then pull it out so you couldn't recycle it back mm. in to try to lower your cholesterol that way. But it's all approaching the whole problem from the wrong perspective, right? Because it's not that we don't want cholesterol, we want to work on stress because think of it this way, if you have high cholesterol, that is a sign that you have high stress in your body because remember, cholesterol is the foundation for making cortisol, right. the, the stress hormone. So your body says, oh, stress, stress, more, more cholesterol to make more cortisol. Right. So you have to find out what that stress is. So that's how you go and you're on a detective mission, right? Because you have to find out if someone has high cholesterol, what 
what is stressing their body, that their body is, remember, everything in the body is doing what it's designed and programmed to do. So if your body is making too much cholesterol, it's because it perceives a stress and it has to make more cortisol. Right. So then you have to go find what is the stress. It could be a myriad of things. It could be you're not getting the right nutrients. It could be that you're eating toxic food that you have you know, poison in your life in, in, in every area, you know, you're breathing toxic air, you have too much light pollution, noise pollution, you're not getting enough sleep. I mean, so of course, it could be uh, so many things, but you have to address the cause of the stress, which then creates oxidative stress. And that in turn, will help you to have a more appropriate cholesterol and reduce the chance of oxidizing that cholesterol and then creating atherosclerosis. And I always tell people too, no one dies of plaque. That's a whole other crazy thing. You don't die of plaque, you die of ruptured plaque. And the plaque that ruptures is usually the thinner plaque, like the, the 40, 50% plaque. So they're going on this wild goose chase, always looking for you know, 80% blockages. Well, those are usually not the ones that kill you because they're usually made out of plaque that's like stone. They right. usually they're don't calcified. rupture. There's th they're yeah. calcified. Right. That's not the plaque that kills you. Now, what happens is if you have a plaque that ruptures that's upstream of that, that area, and then the blood clot that forms breaks off, that's how you can die and get right. a stroke or a heart attack. So you have ruptured plaque. The body does its thing. It tries to heal it. It creates a little scab, a little right. blood clot. But then if that blood clot breaks off, it travels downstream. And then where is it going to get stuck where that... 80% blockages. Yeah. Right. So it's not the 80% blockage that's causing the heart attack directly. It's just that's where the blood clot that broke off from the 40% right. plaque got stuck. Well, you so, don't well, I guess you don't want the 80% plaque to go to 100% plaque then But then it does but it does that see people don't get a heart attack because their plaque got to 100%. Okay. They die of a heart attack because a different set of plaque ruptured and then the clot got stuck at that 80%. I see. So, of yeah. course you don't want 80% either. <laughs> that's right. true. Right. But but um, but that's why stents that's uh, you know prophylactic stenting of arteries in the heart, right. the coronary this, arteries. This is, this is like injecting like a little thread and it opens like up these opening. Yeah. That does that only reduces mortality in the if you're in the middle of a heart attack. And that's where the blood clot has lodged. So only if you're in the middle of a heart attack or you have acute coronary syndrome, which is like a precursor to having a, a heart attack. But if you, and this is especially bad in women, if, they, if you, they go in and they put in these stents in women in their coronary arteries, that actually has no impact on their long-term mortality. But there's a high risk that they're going to break off plaque while they're trying to put in, because mm. women have much, Women have much, women's hearts and men's hearts are not the same. I always go, this, women are not just small men. They really have unique physiology, you know, really. And they have different, you know, they have different <laughs> immune, they have different immune systems. Right. We're very different in a lot of ways. And yeah. we have hearts that are quite different. Our coronary arteries are much smaller caliber. And we tend to have more small vessel disease. So we can get little plaques build up and then we can get what's called broken heart syndrome. We get stress and we get spasm of our arteries so about half of women who die from heart attacks don't even have really high levels of plaque they have some plaque but they're very sympathetically upregulated this is where the fasting can come in because we talked about it that when you fast in in women they lower their sympathetic tone which causes right. constriction of their arteries and they become more parasympathetic because women die 
from spasm of their coronary arteries, even with very small amounts of plaque, and they, they can literally die. And then if they don't die, they can get what's called like cardiomyopathy, where the heart muscle is actually dysfunctional. And they call that, there's other names for it, but the common name is broken heart syndrome. So that's how emotions, like when people die suddenly of a heart attack, they didn't just suddenly grow 100% plaque, right? right what right. they did, they didn't do that. They got a spasm. Right. And I tell this to everyone. There are like key things that you have to do. And then there are things that are like important. But if you don't address the key things, all the other things will never really fix you. Right. They're not going to, not that they're worthless, but they'll never really fix you so the two key things are remove at this end you have to remove the toxin like if you live in a house that's full of mold you have to get out if you live next to a freeway and you're breathing toxic you know volatile solvents all day long and night long you have to move right so you have to remove that's like the first the last r is restore the spirit if you don't address the emotional component of people's lives you will never make them better. You can't. You can't even fix the gut microbiome without right. addressing the emotional component. So you have to remove them, and it could be remove them from the toxic people, right? You have to remove. Yeah. You know, you have to put yourself in a good place. It has to have. You have to have reasonably clean air as best you can get. That's why you get an air filter and water filter for your home. You have to be about around people who are not toxic to you right right? so you have to deal with removing the toxins or the toxics people from your life if someone's toxic they're gonna make you stressed out you're gonna raise your cortisol all this stuff right right? like it's a real physiological biological phenomenon it's not this woo woo oh bad energy vibes no like people can stress you out and that causes real chemical cascade children who grow up in toxic environments toxic with people you know where they have abusive parents and right. such they're actually epigenetically altered so their bodies don't even function right yes. for, and it, we don't know how to fix that you know we can work with it but we you know it actually changes everything yeah it changes so, genetic expression i think and, 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 and one of our staff scientists is actually doing his phd on ptsd epigenetically changing yes. dna expression so this is not uh yeah. you know this is showing up in in, in, in academia you literally right, so change DNA expression it, with with external so, stress. And conventional medicine has not addressed this at all. Right. You know, conventional medicine almost never like if you go to like your family doctor, right. they're not going to say, "Well, let's really look at your toxic exposures." You know, they don't like they don't like even look at anything. They don't right. think about the air you breathe, the food, the you know the the environment. Like where do you Why live? Why do you think that's happening? I mean, so we, I've talked about this before, but it seems to be, to be the insurance companies don't pay for that, and doctors need to get yeah. paid, and you need to build insurance. You have to have a code that you can write in, in the insurance form to get paid, and like the system doesn't let you to actually find the root cause. The system allows you to makes you incentivize you to pay for a prescription. And I think that's why there's a whole like. Netherlands group of healthcare pr- practitioners that are growing, you know, yeah. that people are searching everywhere for yeah. answers because I see them in my office. They'll often go to multiple doctors. And what happens is a lot of primary care doctors have turned into referral mills. So yeah. it's like, oh, and people, because they don't understand that you can have one problem, like, for example, you know, like mold, 
Well, you can be have a mold problem and sensitivity, and that could manifest with headaches and gut problems and skin rashes and and you know um, you know GI problems. So you could have like 15 different symptoms, right? right? And then you go to the primary care doctor, and they'll say, okay, I'm going to refer you to you know the rheumatologist and the orthopedist because you know your knees hurt and you have fibromyalgia, and right. we'll refer you to the neurologist for your chronic migraines and the dermatologist for the hives that just never seem to go. <laughs> I mean, and you end up going to all these doctors. It's all one root cause, right. but they never say, by the way, you know, have you had any floods or water leaks? Right. And then if you say, when I ask that question, it's like, well, yeah, we had a big flood, and it's like, well, did you ever do anything? Did you right? ever get your house checked out for mold? It's like, no. And then they bring someone in, they take down the wall. The whole thing is full of black mold, and they wonder why the whole family. I look at the family. You have to take a family's history right. when you find that every member in the family is suffering with different odd symptoms, you know. And every you right. have a, a sick family, you've got a sick house, right? They call it, you know, sick house syndrome. Yeah. So, so what's going on in that house, you know? And also, have you had new construction? You're off-gassing formaldehyde or whatever. Right. You know, people putting carpeting, they think it's so nice. But, right. you know, they don't, they don't realize what it off-gasses yeah. and so on. But, you know, but the reality is that you, in our conventional system, they end up seeing every different doctor under creation. And each doctor gives them some prescription. Right. It just clamps the symptom. It's not finding the root cause. And and, and they you know each drug then has its own set of symptoms like yeah. you know we know you know we have an opioid addiction problem in yes. this country of course and something like in 2017 they're expecting something like 90,000 people will have died from opioid overdoses right. I mean it's like unbelievable it's like more than you know twice the Vietnam War I mean it's like crazy that's one yeah. year yeah. in this country and. The problem is that the modern science, what have they done? They created a drug for opioid constipation. You know, it's like, wait a minute. We have to get rid of the opioid. We're, not, we're going to treat the constipation that's caused by the opioid, you know? And, Instead of taking and, people off of opioids. like. But the yeah. problem is that people don't understand. The doctors don't understand that pain is a manifestation of inflammation, right? Mm -hmm. So it's inflammation like in your joints. Like there's an epidemic of knee pain. It's like, why is everyone, they keep thinking it's wear and tear. No, it's not. It's breakdown from inflammation. Hmm. So it's amazing. They have studies and like migraines, people have migraines, that you can put someone on a high, high plant-based diet, like 12 servings of vegetables and a couple of fruit a day. And for the short term, I'm in favor of short term veganism, like for maybe three to six months, because the gut can't really digest the animal protein when it has the wrong microbiome. So you've right. got to nurture your microbiome. And you can reduce pain by like up to 80% hmm. in just changing the diet because these polyphenols that are in different plants are like magic right. they actually act as signaling agents they, they help heal the gut it's amazing because we now know that most inflammation starts in the gut from like we call leaky gut and then the immune system which lines the gut has all these immune cells that can produce what are called inflammatory cytokines these right. like bursts of inflammation and these things circulate and they create inflammation everywhere in the arteries in the joints in the nerves it's and also, in the brain no i was also going to say there's also interesting data emerging around ketone bodies themselves mm -hmm. beta hydroxybutyrate being an uh -huh. nrlp3 inflammasome uh, signaler so you're decreasing inflammation through ketones as well. So it's like an interesting way where yeah. diets and inputs can actually control infl inflammation. Well, Absolutely. that's why I'm very, very big on 
some form of periodic fasting right. because then you do get that burst of the the ketone the, body, rate, right. the ketone bodies that right. are very very healing it, but like everything it's about balance right? right so we're not designed it's like um we're not designed to have mTOR constantly suppressed right. so mTOR is one of the sensors for nutrients right yes. so mTOR is about growth and proliferation but uncontrolled we eat most people eat incessantly, right? They eat like nonstop all day long. There right. are people that drink like a, a sugar-flavored coffee, like it's right. in their hand all day long. They're eating nonstop. Right. They have upregulated mTOR all the time. So they have growth and proliferation nonstop. That, of course, leads to um, things like cancer. Cancer, right. right, cancer. And you never have the like the pause to burn. Right. You're always always growing so but if you have the periodic fasting then that you stop that mTOR. and then right. suppress mTOR and then you get this amazing process in the body called autophagy yes. which is cellular repair and you burn fat and you repair your cells so it's all again it's like a rhythmic thing you know that you should eat and not eat and you know all the the old biblical things of there's a time for this and a time for that it's so like moses fasting so for 40 days and 40 on. nights yeah it's so spot on and like the getting like the chinese medicine although they didn't understand the science of it they somehow knew that the gut you know like the chi you know that it's the guts in the gut and that the liver was so important and we didn't understand i used to when i first started in medicine i heard about chinese medicine they talked about liver stagnation i thought like you know i was like science or like what the heck liver stagnation now we know that parkinson's disease is due to environmental toxins that the liver can't detoxify properly hmm. so yes the liver you can call it stagnation or just malfunction or whatever, you know, the liver isn't able to properly detoxify the toxins, the overwhelming load of toxins that we produce our, in our own bodies right. plus our exposures. And then people, it, it creates leaky, you have leaky gut, you have leaky brain, right? right. The blood-brain barrier is not holding and you get these toxins passing into the brain that poison the brain and you right. get Parkinson's. So the Chinese had it right like 2,000 <laughs> years ago. So it's, and so did in the biblical times about there's a time for this. And we, we somehow lost our way. Right. Modern medicine lost its way with the, like the rise of big pharma. Hmm. And the thing that I emphasize over and over is that we are like little know nothings like the body is so unbelievably complex we cannot micromanage the body by blocking major pathways and enzyme systems that's what pharmaceuticals try to do right. because we're nothing is single tasking and nothing is in one space so whenever you give a drug that blocks like the like I have patients and there some doctor gave them you know Aricept because they're they think they're early Alzheimer's right, right. so that is to try to increase acetylcholine right that's its goal it doesn't really work but that's its goal so but it, then is it acetylcholine esterase inhibitor is that what it is yes. okay but then the same patient went to a different doctor because she has overactive bladder, which a lot of elderly women have. And so when they get the urge to void, it just comes right out. So they have a lot of incontinence. So they don't like that. So the doctor gives them an acetylcholinesterase, you know, uh, inhib so, so, right, so they, they, they inhibit the, drug, inhibit the right, breakdown so of acetylcholine. One, right. So one drug tries to, the Aricept tries to increase acetylcholine, and the drug for the bladder is trying to degrade the amount of acetylcholine. So they're just in your like body. conflicting. But they're exactly opposite. Right. And they're different doctors, and they're Jeez. not recognizing. But there are warnings on those overactive bladder drugs that say that they can cause dementia. In wow. fact, there's a lot of warnings. Like, there are so many people that take antihistamines every day. Yeah. And they, they didn't for realize allergies. that. It, 
Right, but they don't realize that histamine is a neurotransmitter that helps to set memories. Yeah. So if you're increasing your risk of dementia, if you live on antihistamines all the time, because it's not like histamine is doing one thing in the body. Right. Histamine is packaged in these immune cells called mast cells. Right. And when the immune system is dysregulated, because allergies are an anomaly, it's, we, right. didn't, we didn't evolve to be allergic to our own environment. Right. So it's a really a function of our immune system. It's so common. People think it's like normal to be a, an allergic person, but it's not. It's an, a broken the mast cells rupture and they release histamine because it's part of the defense system of the body to fight off right. invaders. Right. So, but it's malfunctioning. But histamine does that in the mast cell, but right. also in the brain, it sets memories. So yeah. you're blocking histamine in your brain. It's like, we can't do this. We cannot micromanage the body this way. We have to find better ways to help get the immune system right. But of course, that starts from even preconception, right? Because the immune system is developing in utero. So and drugs can be life saving. So I look at drugs as a bridge back to health. But the problem is that a lot of the drugs are not looked at that way, because the pharmaceutical companies don't make money if you use it for two weeks, right? They want you to use it for life. They make so much money like PPIs, you know, the drugs that block acid production in the stomach. When they first came out, they were approved for two weeks of use. Now people are on them for decades. It's like, there's no data. You need stomach acid. It's like the stomach acid has been maligned. It's like, like no one wants stomach acid. You can't function properly as a digest. You can't digest work properly without stomach acid. We need stomach acid. And yet there are people that are put on it for almost no reason. And then they just stay on it for like, and now it's over the counter. They think it's over the counter. It's safe. They don't realize that. Well, I wanted to also talk about, so you, we talked a lot about removed toxins as a, one of your core tenants. So I also wanted to leave time to talk about uh, uh, restore spirit. I, we didn't dive too much into that. So I think we should cover at least that part. I wanted to understand uh, what did you mean by that? And, and, and yeah, what did you well, mean by that? Well, to restore the spirit involves many, many things. One, which is very important, is to have people in your life who you love and who love you. Because we know that without relationships that matter, people just wither, right? right. I mean, they have, so you have to, and, and say you're alone, like say you went through a divorce and your kids grew up and they kind of moved away and you're really alone, then you have to find your new community. Right. You have to create a community. You have to go out and you have to be just, you know, you, you have to take the steps because if you sit in your place by yourself, no one's going to come to you. Right. So you you have to find a cause. So this helps to accomplish the other thing is to have a purpose in life. You know, a lot of times when people retire and they lose their purpose because their their career is no longer you know happening, then they they die. You know, so that we don't want that. So you everyone has to wake up in the morning, have people they love, people who love them back, and have a purpose in life for their day and for their their so that's like really important and then people have to learn how to manage stress because stress isn't going away my own personal love is guided imagery because i have what they call in buddhism monkey brain so i can't don't quiet we all my have brain. monkey brain well i have especially monkey brain okay so for me it's like i can't like go where there's no thoughts in my brain. I can't, it's like too much trouble. And that's stressing me out. I have to clear my brain. I can't do it. Right. So guided imagery teaches me to 
find a vision in my head. It takes me on a journey. So it says, you know, with beautiful music and a beautiful voice, I want you to picture yourself in a beautiful, safe place, either real or imaginary. And then it guides you through a journey. So my brain is being used to put me in a certain place. And I happen, like, I happen to be um, very easily um, hypnotized because all through my life, I didn't understand it, but I would go like into these like trances. It's like, it's like, where are you? It's like, oh, I don't know. I was like in a trance or something. Like I'd look out the window, the next thing I'd know I was in a trance or something. But now I found out that is not brain damage. <laughs> that's actually that's actually good because they've shown that people who daydream, it could also be called daydreaming. Yeah, that's what I was you know, say. It's like, daydreaming, yeah. yeah. You get lost in a daydream, right? That sounds better than I go into a self induced trance, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like daydream that you daydream. That actually turned out to be um often more creative and have better brain function so it's not a, as bad as it seems yeah. hey, when you if you're a daydreamer but you do have to focus sometimes but um but for me you know that works the best to do guided imagery but there are so many other things we also teach in my office we teach tapping which you know um or they also have the emotional freedom technique where you do like tapping and for i love that for men because men often, they don't want, they think it's like too woo, I'm going to listen to somebody taking me on a little journey. That's like, that's not, doesn't feel they, manly. They, well, data them. on meditation <laughs> works, is, 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 is becoming more and more robust. I mean, I think people are saying, so I think it's, again, I think it's all about the data. No, it, it's interesting. It sounds like, I mean, this is more on the life coaching almost. I mean, so it sounds like you're not just a, a, a primary care doctor for your patients. You're also serving as a coach and a, and a guide and, and how to... And I, I think that's interesting to, to think about restoring spirit because absolutely you see people when they lose their their primary motivation of waking up in the morning, they just kind of wither away. I don't, I don't think that is, uh, again, overly uh, pseudo. I mean, it, it's not total woo-woo, right? Like you can actually feel someone just, you know, disconnecting from, 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 from active life. So restoring that is, 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 is important as much as removing toxin. I think I absolutely agree with you there. It is. It is very, very important. So, you know, having, um, dealing with stress and having quality relationships are so important. Like I even recommend, for example, for people who live alone, they really don't touch other people that they should regularly have massages because we know that just the human touch and they've done this like they've done studies with babies what they call healing touch so they take like premature babies and they do this like little touching thing with the touching of the baby because often the babies are put in you know the incubators and they're just like looked at as little things that you don't touch you know you just we don't want to touch them we might contaminate yeah, them fragile, or something. Right. and so so they're just like left there but if they take those little babies and then they do this like little touching thing that they find that their stress hormones go down, that their their breathing slows, their heart rate like slows. Like oxytocin Just goes up, right? Like the human touch, right? Like That's right. There's human real... touch and oxytocin goes right. up. Exactly. So everyone, if you don't have a relationship, you still need touch, then you go and you get a professional massage. That is great and then you know you that's great or just get like a foot massage or even get like people i've heard this so many times they love to go to the hair salon like elderly women who are widows you know they're they're by themselves now they go every week and get their hair done not because their hair needs doing but because they get their hair washed somebody's touching their scalp and they're getting like a massage Right. right so if they feel so good just to get that that touch 
So, you know, I encourage that. And then go and get regular massages. People need human touch and they need the emotional. And, they, and this is this is as important as eating food. It really is this um, part of restoring the spirit, restoring health. And, you know, and it, it's very important for brain health because we know when people feel sad, that changes their brains, right? Sadness is, is terrible. And so it's these are so many important things. And we live in a world where so many people do live isolated lives. You know, their, their families are disconnected, living all different places. And then they we take elderly people and then they, we put them in assisted living facilities and things. So everybody needs, you know, connection and purpose through their whole lives. And I like to think that I've going I've gone through chapters in my life, you know. So I'm in this chapter and Hopefully there'll be another chapter, you know, that 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 I'll do and um, that but everyone has to morph as they age because, you know, like a lot of surgeons and I was a very prolific surgeon. I still do surgery, but nothing like what I used to. And I only do little outpatient surgeries. I don't want to do the big inpatient ones anymore. But um, a lot of surgeons, when they reach their a certain age, like, say, in their 60s, they don't really feel like they want to do the surgery, then they lose their, their sense of direction, like, who am I if I'm not operating on people? So you have to actually think about this ahead, you know, like, what else am I passionate about? What else can I do? Like, I have one friend who's a surgeon, and he loves cooking and gardening. So he doesn't do surgery anymore, but he's creating life. He's a in master his chef. Yeah. He's a chef <laughs> and he creates dishes and recipes, and he's, he's in with the ground and he's growing things. So that's creating life, you know, plant life. And so he has, that's giving him great joy. And he's earthing in the same process. So it sounds like good. you're in the prime <laughs> of your current phase. But I'm actually curious to hear about, you know, in, in the future, what would be the next phase for you? Uh, I mean, it sounds like you've already transitioned a couple of phases. You know, what else is yeah. interesting on your radar? What are you looking at? You know, what is most exciting for you moving forward? Well, I love teaching. So um, for many, many years, I was assistant clinical professor at USC, but I was teaching surgery, but I'm not doing that now. So, but I love teaching. So I'm on the lecture circuit. So um, next month, I'm going to be doing a two-day program on women's health in Dubai. Okay. And then I'm speaking in India in um, February, and I'll be speaking in London in uh, June and in between I will be doing other I have like four webinars that I will have coming up and you can you know find me probably on the internet with different like webinars that I've done so <laughs> how, how, um, how can our listeners find you uh, you know do, do we have a web page or a, a speaking tour or a Twitter that you can shout out and we can have our well, community come and come and find you and follow your follow your well, talks I just I just started doing Twitter okay. about two months ago and so I have a pretty good following for just two months. So for that, it's at Dr. Felice Gersh. So it's pretty easy. Just Dr. 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 And then my first name and last name. And I don't know if it matters, but the D, the F and the G are capitalized, at least the way I see them. Doesn't matter. And I don't think it matters. Yeah, that's how much I know about social media. And I have um, a website for my practice, which is at integrative MGI, MGI standing for um, Medical Group of Irvine, Integrative Medical Group of Irvine. And then I have my own little personalized one in anticipation of having a book written and published, hopefully by a year. It's been a project that just hasn't quite gotten completed over time, just been busy. But I'm hoping to have a book out in a year. And, and that is um, Felice L. Gersh, MD. 
that's an easy one too. <laughs> so those are my main social medias. Yeah, no, we should. I, I'm excited to hear about the book and, and, and on the speaking tour, and we should definitely, you know, continue the conversation once once those are out. But I think I, I really enjoy this conversation because one, and I think we talked about this before that, you know, in the space of biohacking and, and, and really being thoughtful, quantifying human performance, we don't have, um, you know, we would like to see more thought leaders that are women that understand women's issues uh, to, to be more proactive and out there and prolific. I think for better or for worse, it just seems to be I guess stereotype is like a very, you know, tech bro or, or a guy thing to do. But I don't think, I think if you look at our community groups, it's literally half women. And, and we, we, and I think it's awesome that we have you on this program to really share your expertise around the data and research on women. And I think and more people should be doing research in the space because if you look at a lot of clinical trials, they're done on just men. And and, uh-huh. and, and and for a lot of psychology psychology studies, they're done on just you know college aged psychology students, right? Because those are the easiest sample of people <laughs> to actually do studies on. So it is refreshing to hear about the data done on women, focus on, on on results and metrics for 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 women. So appreciate you you know highlighting these issues, and I think we definitely want to link to them. So for the folks out there that are interested in applying some of your 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 your, your practices and, and techniques, uh, they can definitely look those up and, and look you up online. Absolutely, and I'll be off. Uh, actually, in a few hours, I'll be flying to Las Vegas for the. Um, 25th anniversary meeting of the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. Okay. And I'll be speaking there. Um, I have two lectures coming up and, uh, you know, I will spread the word about your podcast to, to come to, and I'm going to try to educate. They have a lot of new doctors who are just like, just breaking out and trying to learn. So it gives me like a chance to educate the doctors, you know, who are hopefully going to be the, the future thought leaders and change the paradigm of what healthcare really is and what it, to turn it to what it should be. Yeah, no, that's good news. I think that's how you scale out your, your thinking mindset, right? If you can amplify and, and have some of your experience spread out to the future doctors, you can touch, you know, hopefully, yeah, a hundred of mini uh, felices out, out running yeah, around. I, I think we could, uh, that's what it takes, right? If we really want to change how healthcare is thought about, well, we have to target one, the people that are actively practicing medicine, and then two, educating the, the everyday patient how to be a little bit more self-aware and armed and knowledgeable about, about their own their own performance and health. Well, Jeffrey, you hit it right on the head. That is exactly what my mission is for this next chapter. I, I still am seeing patients most days in the office, but I'm trying to spread my my legacy by having more impact in the wider society as a whole. Absolutely. We'll have to have you back on the program, um, but I appreciate this conversation and we'll, we'll, we'll have you on soon again. Thanks so much. Please. I would love that. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Have a good day. Yeah, take care. That was a really fun conversation with Dr. Gersh. Um, I, I, tr- I, I actually, she just had such a great vibrant energy and clearly so passionate about the space and and helping patients and i think um those are the voices that we like to highlight on our program and i think something that it gives me just added energy i think zill our producer was listening on the conversation i think it was again so so important to have uh you know diverse voices and and and, and serious voices that are just so passionate about helping people so we'll, we'll definitely have her back on the program and i was just as we're wrapping up we're planning to do events in in person events in 2018 and uh i think she would be a good uh, person to, to be giving a keynote there um as always uh 
we love the questions and the feedback for this program. So send us a note. Zill will see all those messages. I'll see all those messages. Love to love to improve and, and, and continue providing good content and education for our community here. Um, as always, find us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And, and also Spotify, as Zill mentioned. We just were officially approved as an official Spotify podcast. So... Uh, and our, our audience is growing phenomenally. I think we literally are growing like 30% month over a month now, which is huge. So, and, and I think it's been funny because I've been seeing people um, just at cafes and, and people come up to me saying like, oh, I like your, I like your podcast. So it's really rewarding to both Zilla and I to, to hear the, the traction and growth of this podcast. Uh, so appreciate the support uh, and share out the podcast. We think this is good. Um, until next time, uh, Jeff is out. Peace.